Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Lib Dem leadership election and you ask us, why don't we talk more about middle class cocaine users? Stephen's uh, eating out to help out, so it's just Anoush and Alva this week. So on Thursday, we have the results of the Lib Dem leadership election. So they're just wrapping up their campaigns this week. Alva, can you give us a bit of a rundown who's in the contest and and what are they pitching and how different are they actually from each other? I feel like the first thing I should say to you is who, in a really cheeky way, since that's the joke you get, <laughs> like any time you mention the Liberal Democrats online, there's just a brigade of people. <laughs> that's their only joke. The Lib Dems have been having, to be fair, I mean, it has felt like a long leadership contest, but all leadership contests mm. like this are really long unless it's a sort of Tory style thing where people drop out before the end. So it's Leila Moran versus Ed Davey, the acting co-leader. And I think, you know, as it goes, it has been a quite interesting campaign. Yeah. I don't know if listeners agree, but certainly Vera Hobhouse, par to her, didn't even get past the nomination stage, but did really manage to shape the the contest and the nature of the debate by like laying down the gauntlet with her um, abandoned equidistance slogan, niche but intellectually coherent. And sort of she sparked a, an interesting discussion for the Liberal Democrats about how they should position themselves relative to Labour and the Conservatives basically arguing that they need to... S- make explicit their preference of Labour over the Conservatives and the fact that they are a centre-left party, which basically no one disagrees with, even people who are further to the right of the Lib Dems. But it did kind of send both of the other candidates into a bit of a spin in that Leila Moran gave an interview. We, We don't know for sure whether this was prompted by Vera Hobhouse's comments of whether she would have done it anyway but definitely I think MP colleagues of hers think that she did it in response to Vera Hobhouse. She gave an interview where she said that she would like the Liberal Democrats to be more radical than Labour on certain issues that she remembers when back in the day it was cool to be Lib Dem and she wants to get them back there and also that 
this is the bit that I think has been more contested since with her slightly arguing it wasn't exactly what she meant. But she also basically implied that with the slightly new positioning of Keir Starmer on certain issues, that all of the young people who were really mobilized by Corbyn and his sort of socially liberal message were there for the taking and that the Liberal Democrats should be really pitching to to those people. Ed Davey and also Tim Farron, who wrote for us on this, have been broadly in agreement that the Liberal Democrats are a centre-left party insofar as Liberal Democrats can be considered on a left-right spectrum, which a lot of them don't really like. But insofar as they are on that spectrum, they would be sort of centre-left and they're, they all broadly own that. But the argument that's being put forward is that the Liberal Democrats are second to Conservatives in a lot of their target seats. So moving closer to Labour isn't necessarily going to win over moderate Tories. But they're all kind of in agreement on that. It's, it's more a difference in emphasis over how close to Labour they would be, exactly how liberal they would be. But on lots of policies like universal basic income or green jobs revolution, they are broadly quite similar. So I think it's more, it's a question, I think, of the of the figurehead because we, as we know, the, the Lib Dems vote on their own policy and there's an extent to which the Liberal Democrat leader can lead their party and shape that policy and, you know, take control of the membership and the direction a bit. But it's still broadly set by the membership. And so it's whether you want Leila Moran, who, who is newer, considered sort of fresher, a woman, potentially more interesting and also a more of a decisive break from the coalition era or Ed Davey who's a an experienced figure and you know would point to his his record in coalition his like experience of working closely with Paddy Ashton his colleagues talk about him as a great campaigner and so on but those are those are all very subjective measures I don't even really feel comfortable summarizing the the more personal case in favor of both of them, which is, is which is, I think, what it's really resting on rather than their individual policies. It is more whether you'd rather it's Leila Moran representing the party on the news or, or Ed Davey. But yeah, I'm interested to know what has anything jumped out of the contest or not for, for you, Anoush, because I've become really into the Lib Dems, as I think is really obvious from my Twitter. I think they're really interesting. <laughs> but you've been doing lots of policy journalism. And so as someone who who hasn't been following it as closely, has anything jumped out at you? Yeah, I think I think you're right to find it really fascinating because unlike the Conservatives or the Labour Party, every time the Lib Dems have a new leadership election or they have to sort of rebrand or, or, or relaunch themselves in some way, whether that's a, a leadership election or a manifesto, they're always starting from a sort of blanker slate because the Conservatives and Labour, they already have this sort of prejudgment among the public of, of what what to expect for, from them. Whereas the Lib Dems always have to choose choose a new path. It's like what you were saying. Do they lean towards the left? Do they do they have a consensus that they're a centre-left party now? Or do they define themselves in comparison to the Conservatives in, in seats that they want to win off them? Like you say, you know, most of their target seat, the majority of their target seats in, in the most recent election were Conservative seats. So do they want to concentrate on what they can give to... Uh, wavering Tory voters instead they're always trying to come up with some kind of new platform and almost new electorate each time and it's that abandoned equidistance thing that you know they never can quite do because they're always trying to define themselves in terms of 
both of the major parties. And so you do get really interesting sort of policy balances and compromises from from the Lib Dems that actually tell you more about the party than maybe when the other two launch their manifestos, for example. So I do think it's really interesting. But actually, it could have been more interesting. This leadership contest, like you say, it's a difference in emphasis more than a radical policy difference. I think they've both said that they're, they're interested in universal basic income, for example. That's a easier thing to campaign for and to and to sort of endorse when you're in a period now of of massive state spending you know it's difficult to define your economic platform as a lib dem leadership candidate when you're you know the backdrop is you know the conservative party is 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 buying people's lunch so it's really difficult to define yourself against your competitor in that way so so they're both sort of backing these kind of radical investment projects and and economic shakeups but that's not very diff- that that doesn't help them differentiate each other from each other if you see what i mean so i do think that the difference in emphasis is probably more what voters will be thinking of when they vote for them like you say ed davy more of a symbol of the coalition era you know people may remember when he was energy secretary do voters want want someone from that time who has the experience of working in government but you know, represents a time when the when the consensus was not that they were a centre left party, or at least the the policies that they were complicit in, in in implementing certainly didn't make them a centre left party in that time. And then you have Leila Moran, who you know she's more representative, like you say, a more fresher face. She's a woman. She has you know Palestinian heritage. She's she's pansexual. I think she came out as pansexual at the beginning of this year. And mm. I did a, a event with her at the end of last year. And, you know, a lot of the things that she was saying would, you know, be very attractive, I think, to the new young left that you were talking about, perhaps who are disillusioned by the, by the Corbyn era. So I do think it's going to, although, like you say, it's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about them in terms of their identities. I think it is going to come down more to a personality and sort of symbolic preference rather than come down to an individual policy platform because there's not much you can really put between what they're offering I think at the moment. Yeah I think that's right and I certainly I think from from covering it quite closely that's the funny thing that you begin talking about this leadership election by talking about that kind of big row that the Lib Dems had about how they should relate to Labour that was all kind of sparked by, by Vera Hobhouse and there was, you know, mm. I think there was like a little bit of a perception maybe that Leila Moran's strategy was less robust than Ed Davies because of her talk of being more radical than Labour and scooping up those sort of Corbynites and so on. But the more you drill down into it and the more you sort of pay attention to each of their campaigns and, and speak to their teams and so on, the analysis for where the Liberal Democrats need to go next, what their strategy is, the policies it's all basically identical. It's not like they would be targeting different seats. They would both, I think, be Mm. speaking to Labour behind the scenes. There are so many things that are like broadly kind of identical the more you drill down into it, even though the the mood music is different. So I think you're right. It It is funny that it is more about personalities. And certainly I think Ed Davey is kind of leaning into that because I think he's been more comfortable talking about the fact that one of his children, his son John, can't walk or talk and Mm. I think that he has been much more comfortable talking about his son's disability and his caring responsibilities for this leadership election because 
I think he now sees it as a very important part of his pitch that he really understands the crisis in social care. And it's also a big part of when people talk about him personally, they talk about just, you know, like what a nice man he is. And he also cared for his dying mother with his brothers when he was growing up. I think that those who know him well see that as, as quite fundamental to the kind of person you'd be getting as leader of the party if he were elected. So the personal is important there as well as, you know, I think he's very much decided, well, I can't, I can't escape my record in coalition. So I'm really going to like remind everyone repeatedly about the funding I got for renewable energy, which he sees as a really big, big win from the coalition era. But then, yeah, on on the other side, Leila Moran is also tapping into the personality thing. You definitely see from her supporters that they consider her much more charismatic than Ed Davey. They think that she's sort of fresher and more interesting, as well as not being involved in the coalition, that she sort of speaks to a more liberal mindset or, or the sort of the young approach that they want to be taking. And, and, and then, you know, her, her MP supporters would also say that she's the one who has cut through. I think they're very aware that as the third party, one of them was saying to me as the third party, um, you have to be fast and you have to be punchy in order to get any media coverage whatsoever. And I think that they feel like Leila Moran is better placed to do that than Ed Davey, maybe. But then, yeah, you mentioned Leila Moran being pansexual, which only she only spoke pub- publicly about quite recently. But there's also the thing that hasn't really come up in the contest until today. I watched the brief hustings that they had on BBC News with Victoria Derbyshire this morning. And Victoria Derbyshire was the first journalist to, who, to my knowledge, has asked Leila Moran about the the assault issue in her past that came up. I don't know if you if you're aware of it, Anush. Yes, yeah, no, I am. Yeah, she, she was a, arrested for hitting her partner at Lib Dem conference, and then charges were dropped. But she does have that on her record and has been asked about it. And I have wondered throughout the campaign whether that would be an issue because I would wonder if it would become an issue for the Liberal Democrat leader at an election if you would just get a load of Tory bots anytime she was mentioned online replying with the BBC News article about that incident and if and if, if that would just become the only thing people knew about Leila Moran and whether that would sort of tarnish whatever she was trying to to say and get cut through on, on other things. And Victoria Arbusher actually did ask her about it, which I thought was 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 really interesting because it hasn't come up and I think it's probably felt uncomfortable to ask about because it maybe doesn't feel entirely fair or relevant to bring it up. But she did, and I think Lena Moran gave a brief but interesting answer, very happy to, to own it. And she was very happy to an- answer questions about it because she says that people, you know, often look at politicians on TV TV and just think, oh, why don't they answer the question? So she's happy to answer the question. But yeah, I do wonder if if that will have been taken into consideration by Lib Dem members, whether they've whether it's been on their radar, whether that has has impacted on on their vote at all. I, I, I don't think it has really factored very much, but it's something that I have wondered about. Yeah, as you say, because of the way the policy is and the way the Lib Dems are broadly in agreement about the the approach that they need to have going forward. I think it does rest on these tiny things about personalities. But one thing I would add is that in terms of their approaches, actually the main way that I can see them differing is in in terms of the very long game. So I wrote a piece 
a while back, I think I called it like, where next for the Liberal Democrats on a, a new report from the academic think tank, the UK in a changing Europe, which sort of set out the electoral landscape that the new leader of the Lib Dems will inherit. And it talks about how most of the of the Lib- Liberal Democrat target seats are Tory facing, like we were saying earlier. But I think that the way that Leila Moran and Ed Davey potentially differ from each other is the fact that I think that Leila Moran's team are very focused on not just 2024, but potentially 2029. And their argument is that they already need to be laying the groundwork for Labour facing seats if they're to have a, a serious election strategy. I think that's quite interesting because we talk so much about how, you know, that tactic of not going too far to the left because you're, you have to fight in Tory seats. Uh, we've talked a lot about that, but it never, in the sort of the Nick Clegg days, they were in a lot of Labour facing seats because they were a much more successful and bigger party. And if they want to get back there again, then they will be contesting against Labour and, and all those same problems will arise again. And I think definitely... I'm not saying that Ed Davies' team haven't been thinking about that because they could well have been. It just hasn't come to my attention that they are. But definitely, I think Leila Moran's team have a real view on like the 2029 game, which is quite interesting. That's really interesting. And also, she's had the, I mean, she's very, very busy and, you know, committed politician, but she has had the luxury of not having to be acting leader in this time, in this very, you know, difficult time where politicians are incredibly in demand and Ed Davey has had to you know do the job of, of, of a leader and do the rounds that you're expected to do etc whereas she's probably had time to do more of that longer term thinking than he has and actually I do get that impression as well from from her and her team that they have that that longer view and they're not just sort of thinking about the failings of the of the party in the last election and they actually have a more future you know, future focused campaign. And maybe that's, you know, maybe simply that that's why, because they've had a little bit more time to think about it and position themselves as sort of not the same old leadership, but having that that kind of difficult reckoning with with where the party went wrong and how it can rebrand and, and also sort of just transform itself for the future as well. But you know, they may not face the same old challenges all over again. We've spoken about on the podcast before, so I won't bore the listeners with the reasons why, but the Lib Dems do benefit when when the Labour Party is in a stronger position generally. And as we know from various uh, election post-mortems, but Jeremy Corbyn as a leader was a problem for the Labour Party in the most recent election. And he was also a problem for Lib Dems. And, you know, I've heard that from Leila Moran's team themselves that, that that you know this is this is what happens when you have a when you have a Labour leader who's not popular or you have a Labour party that's not popular then it then it, it affects the Liberal Democrat candidates negatively on the whole so maybe you know it depends but maybe they won't have that same old problem all over again depending on Keir Starmer's popularity and how voters respond to his Labour party next time an election comes around so you know it might be a whole different challenge that's yeah that's where it becomes not just an issue of the the theory of the candidates but also the practice because I think that people who are backing Ed Davey and those who know him better do all seem to think that he's the one with the real strategic vision and he you know he's an economist he's a real details man he has a real sense of what it means to be the third party and how you get cut through 
how you negotiate your tricky relationship between the two big parties, how you win your ground game and so on. Like I think that people are very convinced by his thinking on those things. But as you say, I mean, definitely, I think Lille Moran's team are keen to to show that they have a sense of the long game because I think they're probably quite keen to dispel this idea that it's only Ed Davy who has the experience or the strategic insight. But then it's also, you know, a question of who's better to implement it. You know, in the, the debate that they did earlier, I saw a clip circulated afterwards of, you know, Ed Davy was being asked, you know, well, you didn't you didn't win against Joe Swinton last time. So what makes you think you could beat um, Leila Moran this time? And I thought that was it was a bit of a tricky question. And he did, he just did all right, mm-hmm. but it was kind of being circulated as a bit of a gaffe because, I mean, he, he started off with a very good answer. And then she said, so are you saying that, that Leila's not as good as Joe then? And he said something about how, you know, they're different, you know, that, that Leila is not Joe. And I think, you know, he was really just trying to reflect the fact that people do talk about Leila Moran a bit like she's just another Joe Swinson because they're both women when they are different people, different politicians with different pitches. So I think he was kind of just trying to stand up for her, but it was being circulated as as a bit of a gaffe. And I suppose it doesn't matter what I think of it. I didn't really think it was a gaffe. People online did seem to think it was. And so maybe if the Mm. strategy is there, but the delivery isn't, or it just doesn't land quite so well, then, you know, I mean, Leila Moran, I think did come across very well in that brief debate. I think they, they both did. But the verdict on, on Ed Davey seems to be harsher and probably it's, it's those little things, that, the personality stuff, that will ultimately decide this. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Now, this is a question from someone who hasn't left a name, but they've said more soldiers than ever are being discharged from the army for drug use. Why are we not talking about how normalised Class A drug usage has become among millennials? So this is from a exclusive story from The Guardian today about the rise in the number of British soldiers being sacked for drug use. Um, so that's the context for the question. But yes, Alva, do you think there's not enough in our discourse about the use of Class A drugs among our generation? Yeah, I think this is such an interesting question. And it also ties into a bit of I mean, Stephen, if he were here, would be condemning it as weekend Twitter, which is fair enough. But um, (laughs) Sean Bailey, the Tory mayoral candidate in London, 
has been talking a bit about the the problem of middle class drug use and there was a bit of a discussion about that at the weekend on social media I have very strong views on this weirdly that well not weirdly I'm not going to apologize for it but I think it probably is much less liberal and chilled than a lot of people my age where I do feel very frustrated by middle class drug use particularly middle class cocaine usage because like for an example I mean living in London I went to a party within the past year and when I arrived the building I was going into for the party was closed because there had just been a fatal stabbing on the doorstep of the door I was going to be going in. So I had to wait outside for ages. It was like, and there were lots of police around. It was still under surveillance and potentially not very safe. And it was incredibly sad. And, and there have been other stabbings around where I live. And I think if you live in London, you're always aware of these things and just the, like, the really high ne- levels of knife crime. And then eventually I went into the party and it was really, really nice. And then someone offered to order us some cocaine, which to clarify for the the friends of my parents who listen to the podcast, I have never done, never done any drugs. Um, But (laughs) so that really bugged me because a sort of a few breaths before we had been talking about the really sad incident that had just happened outside that building. And it was as though people these quite smart, very kind people didn't see a causal link at all. And so I've all, I've just always felt quite strongly about the way middle-class people who are, especially, you know, white middle-class people in London who just move here and are very insulated from the social problems of drug usage. They just, they pour money into this system that is so damaging to so many people in London and they just don't see. And also not just in London, but, you know, globally, the the global harm that it causes. So I, I feel quite strongly about that and find it annoying that, you know, people who are vegan or, or who in otherwise have, have something of a social conscience don't really think about this issue. But I did see in response to Sean Bailey's comments about middle-class drug usage, some people saying, including Chaminda Jainetti, who sometimes writes for the New Statesman, some people arguing, you know, how do we know that it actually is middle class drug usage? Why do we talk about it in those terms? You know, lots of other people who aren't middle class do drugs. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's maybe fair enough, but the, where, where are the facts behind that? And I thought that was a good point, but I did look it up right before we came on. And I think that there is some evidence that more middle class people take drugs than people below the poverty line, for example. So there is some basis in it. But Anush, you do lots of work on on these kinds of issues. I wonder what what your take is. Is it a bit more liberal than mine? I think so, yeah. But I would completely agree with the sort of the hypocrisy and also the very uncomfortable cultural tension um, behind drug use in the city. So you do, of course, have white people blamelessly taking drugs recreationally and then black people on their doorstep, like you say, suffering sometimes fatal tragedies because of that that industry and that trade and that's something that's been pointed out you know from politicians across the spectrum so Sadiq Khan's spoken about it Sajid Javid's spoken about it David Lammy spoke about it in an interview that I did with him a while back during a time of a lot of knife crime and 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 death on the streets when he was saying casual in fact this is a quote from him he said casual recreational drug use that has effectively decriminalized cocaine for middle class 20 somethings across the country who are not being arrested for their use 
and for whom ordering on WhatsApp or Snapchat from a young urban kid that turns up is prolific. So, you know, there is definitely an inequality there, a racial inequality there that is incredibly uncomfortable and that white people who take drugs recreationally do need to interrogate about themselves and see if it fits, you know, in their in their sort of, like you say, in, in their view of society and how it should work. But ultimately, this kind of idea of middle class cocaine users, the woke who do coke, is a little bit of a myth. And Sean Bailey is is kind of parroting a line that the conservatives love to focus on when they're talking about the problem with with drugs or or if they're faced with the argument about drug reform or or decriminalization of drugs that because it's a bit of a discra- distraction Cressida Dick of the Metropolitan Police also likes to to parrot this line and actually I did look into this the woke who do coke thing in 2018 when it was being used briefed out by the conservatives as the focus of a review of drug misuse that um, Sajid Javid launched in October 2018 to see if there was much truth in it and to be honest that middle class thing that middle class accusation actually doesn't bear out so there were some some stats from 2017 to 18 into the use of cocaine by household income and it actually showed a dip of use among upper middle earners so that's those likely to hold professional jobs earning between 30,000 and 40,000 with higher use for those earning around the average household income which is 20 8,000 and the very wealthy, which is 50,000 or more. So, you know, it depends on how you define middle class, but it's not clear cut. It's like you say, there are plenty of people who perhaps society wouldn't deem as classically middle class who, who are taking drugs like cocaine recreationally. So it's not really the whole picture. And it does suit a conservative narrative to focus on that because it, it sort of buys into a bit of a culture war, you know, like these metropolitan liberal kids who live off their you know, parents' money in in London and take drugs and but are also, you know, believe in certain things like about society that jar with with the kind of their kind of activities, like their ethics jar with with what they choose to do uh, for fun. So I think that's that's kind of why Sean Bailey's focusing on that. And also it is very compelling. It's very neat. It's a it's a good narrative because it points out hypocrisy. And I absolutely agree that there is hypocrisy, but everyone's a hypocrite and hypocrisy is not a basis on which to make policy. And really, from my own from my own liberal perspective, I do think that um, making more people into criminals doesn't reduce crime. And, you know, that that's borne out in a lot of evidence for places that have treated people's drug problems as a health problem rather than a crime problem, but also liberalized the use of drugs as well. It, that's so interesting. And I think with those statistics, it's interesting that that plays out a little bit like the debates that we've seen in recent months with things like child poverty, for example, where there are so many metrics to define it that basically any any political party with any skill can cherry pick statistics that suit their argument. Because when I looked it up quickly, you could see, see that drug use was much higher among among high earners compared with people below the poverty line, which I suppose makes sense because if you're literally below the poverty line, you potentially just don't have the funds for drug purchase at all. But it does, you know, the the first five or six stories I found did seem to indicate that that basically the richer you were, the more the more you were associated with higher drug usage, which I suppose is less the case. But I suppose it's it's interesting because I think, as you say, it appeals to a very neat idea that basically if you could run a public awareness campaign or something 
to get people to reflect on the consequences of their drug usage and the the global exploitative industry that they are funding from doing it, that you could massively limit the funds and the resources of criminal gangs who ex you know who exploit people around the world, like young children on county lines in the UK, but also, you know, internationally. And I suppose that that's always my feeling that if if there was a serious conversation about where your money is going when you buy drugs, that would potentially have a quite positive trickle down effect. But I take your point that that really appeals to a very neat instinct in me and and the idea that you just make more criminals is not is not the answer but you know I'm only these figures that I quoted are only about cocaine use so you know Mm. whatever you've also been reading online could well be true for other drugs as well so you know I don't want to undermine the research that you've done but yeah I do think a public awareness campaign aimed at affluent millennials living in cities probably wouldn't have the effect that whichever body decided to do it would would want because from the stats that I'm thinking about 3.4% of people in households with an income income of 50,000 or more have used cocaine in the past year this is 2017-18 compared with 3.6% of people who are unemployed so it doesn't look like social background really does dictate the level of cocaine use specifically um, or didn't a year ago, the, the, the most recent stats that are available. So I'm not sure if that would work. And also it would it would play into the hands of a government that clearly doesn't have a grip on the right policymaking in, t- in terms of dr- drug use, because we've seen it time and again, and it's not just the Conservatives who duck the issue, but once politicians get into office, even though they've seen all of the evidence to the contrary, they just can't bring themselves to liberalise drug policy or, or decriminalise certain drugs even though the evidence from countries and studies generally suggests that that is the right way of dealing with it, just because it's just so unpopular in the same way that probably this, you know, woke people doing coke kind of message really chimes with people. In terms of exact policies for like liberalising and in some cases legalising drug use, what would that mean in terms of cocaine? Like, What would be a smarter a more effective approach to cocaine use in the UK, for example? Yeah, it's a really good question because there's different kind of ways to approach different kind of drugs depending on how dangerous they are and also depending on the wider societal impact that they have, like we've just been discussing. And that's not something that I know about specifically for sure. But, you know, from from going by policymakers who know a lot more about it than I do, like Norman Baker, for example, the Lib Dem MP, the former Lib Dem MP, who was a Home Office minister, I think, during the coalition, he pushed for changes to to drug policy. I think in general, you know, it was a time when politicians and civil servants were pointing towards the Portuguese model, which, um, you know, stopped prosecuting for minor drug offences. But I don't know specifically about cocaine, but just going by what the evidence was at that time and how it was ignored by David Cameron and Nick Clegg, you know, it's just something that I've personally found convincing. And also, I suppose, um, like when this conversation is never far from overlapping ones about the sort of the alleged institutional racism of organisations like the Met Police, and like you say, like mm-hmm. lots of con- like lots of convictions for like low level drug crime is potentially like not really the best way of resolving either problems around like gangs and drugs or around other social problems. 
Yeah, exactly. The Met Police, I do think, really love this narrative. So Cressida Dick, I think I think it was in 2018 or, or around that time. This is actually a quote from her that I quoted in a piece that I, I did around that time where she said, a whole group of middle class or whatever you want to call them, people who sit around happily thinking about global warming and fair trade and environmental protection and all sorts of things, organic food, but think there is no harm in taking a bit of cocaine. Well, there is, there's misery throughout the supply chain. So, you know, it's it's absolutely a perfect thing for Cressida Dick as, as the commissioner for the Met to say, because it distracts from the fact that perhaps her police force are either enforcing laws that don't really make that much sense evidence-wise, or they're not getting to grips with the with the issue at all Mm. it distracts from both of those issues and of course there's misery in the supply chain particularly now because of the policies that we have in this country but also overseas as well so you know there's a truth in what she's saying but it's also a bit like aren't you supposed to be the person either lobbying for better laws to enforce or getting your officers to, to to enforce them in a in a better more efficient way and protecting people because at the moment people involved in the drugs trade are not protected stop and search some dinner parties for a change (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's funny that's funny because I I do remember that quote from the time and and my my sort of the frustrations I was already venting about sort of people my age doing cocaine I remember that quote of just thinking like hell yeah Chris at a dick but I take your I take your point and (laughs) I fell for it yeah You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague, Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. I don't know why I was about to say Nick Clegg. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY exclusions apply see site for details hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.